0: Thank you again for the opportunity to preach the gospel to you. Well, last Lord's Day, we began by considering um, the life of faith, dying well, dying in faith, looking to Jesus. This morning we considered uh, the life of the Christian as he struggles with sin, and how God treats us kindly, even in those moments. But this evening, I wanna take you back to the beginning. I wanna take you back to where it all began and explain to you something of your enemy and mine. So if you've never heard a sermon on Satan, you're gonna hear one this evening. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to mainly focus on verse 1. And if you would, as you, as you turn there, uh, bow with me in prayer uh, one more time. Father, it's the evening, and our minds and our bodies may be weak, so we ask for divine help to strengthen our minds, to strengthen our bodies as we close out this Lord's day meditating on your word. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us, even here, Lord. So grant us this evening a meditation on your word that changes us into the image of Christ more and more. And Lord, please, for the hearers, open their hearts, their minds, their eyes to see glorious things from your word. And as always from the preacher, Lord, please help him, he is weak. In Christ's name I ask, amen. Well, many years ago in my B.C. days, my before Christ days, uh, I watched a movie that I wouldn't really recommend now, um, uh, mainly because it does not set your mind on Christ. Um, It was a movie about con men. It was a movie about deception. The central character was a mastermind this enigmatic figure who portrayed himself as a cripple to fool the police. As the Fed interrogated this seemingly petty criminal, he wove a tale of epic proportions, convincing the Fed to look for a particularly infamous criminal responsible for the crimes committed, a man that ultimately never really existed The entire movie walks through his testimony about the events of the crime. The fed press him for details, and he cowers. They press him harder, and he rages, declaring his innocence and proclaiming that a cripple could never aid in such a crime as this. He really didn't know why the others involved in the crime chose him to help. After all, he was a cripple. As the fed finishes the interrogation and the man exits the building dragging his crippled leg behind him the scene pans to the lead detective sipping coffee in the interrogation room chatting casually with his coworker unwinding after a stressful day as he's sipping the coffee casually reading the corkboard behind him that contains certain pictures with names and facts unrelated to his current interrogation the narrative of the cripple's story begins to run through his mind. He begins to hear the cripple's voice and connects words, places, events, and people. He recognizes that the entire story of the cripple was made up. The whole testimony that the petty criminal gave was made up of a collection of random facts put together from various cases and leads found on the detective's cork board. The criminal had even used the names and locations of the corkboard maker itself to weave his tale. Quartet, Skokie, Illinois. The mastermind was the cripple. He had the mastermind right there in front of him, and the criminal had tricked him by his subtlety. In slow motion, the, te- the detective drops his coffee cup in Hollywood fashion, shattering it on the floor. He runs outside to find the cripple, But the man was gone. The final scene shows the mastermind walking away into a crowd with his foot magically straightening up and beginning to walk normally. He lights a cigarette in cool, collected fashion, knowing that he had just executed his scheme with subtle precision. As the movie closes, it harkens back to a scene in the interrogation room Where you hear the mastermind utter these cryptic yet revealing words. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. Our text has much of the same ring or flavor to it. In it, we find an ancient subtlety and the father of subtle evil schemes, Satan himself. In this text, we find the seed of every evil, the starting point of every sin, the echo of every pain, misery, and destruction. It's the starting point of the downfall of man. Every evil mankind has ever known begins right here. And our text again is Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So I have three succinct points for you this evening. First, I want you to notice the subtle instrument. Notice the subtle instrument. Secondly, notice the subtle name. And third, notice the subtle temptation. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, but I do take the word subtle here from the King James, because I think in in, in in communicating the truth of this passage in particular, it offers the best word for understanding the context. The NAS and ESV have the word crafty, while others have uh, shrewd or cunning or clever or even wily. The word subtle has a certain shade to it, for lack of a better word, that the other translations Don't carry with them. Well, the obvious background of this text is the interaction uh, in the creation account. Six literal 24 hour days, God pronounced all things good. The work of God's hand called back to him with one resounding word beauty, goodness. And he pronounced all of it very good. At the pinnacle of that creation was man, formed from the dust of the wilderness and placed in the Garden of Eden. And given a task as a prophet, priest, and king. He was God's vice-regent on earth. In this pinnacle of creation in which the image of God resided, Adam was given a commandment to partake and to abstain. You know the text. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Adam was given dominion over the creation. He was to subjugate it. As a tool of subjugation, a helper, God formed every beast of the field and bird of the air. God brought brought them to Adam to see what he would name them. And whatever he named them, that is what they were called. He gave names to the livestock, to the animals and even animals fit for more domesticated use, to the birds of the heavens, to the beasts of the field, those who were found outside the temple garden in the wilderness yet to be subjugated. None were a fit helper for Adam, so God made Eve. And this at last, he says, was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now these are the obvious facts. These are Sunday School 101 Bible Facts, okay? This is the obvious background. What is not so obvious is the transition of scene. These are all chapter two facts. What is not so obvious is the transition of scene. Scene one, if you want to call it that, closes with an interesting observation. Look at the end of chapter two. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's an interesting fact that Moses closes the creation account in chapter 2 with the man and the woman being naked and unashamed. It's kind of strange. It's like a, a little thing hanging out there. Why did he say that? It's almost like a comment hanging on the end of the narrative A comment that doesn't seem to fit. But Moses is painting for us a picture. He's backgrounding information for us to consider, to understand a crucial nuance in the next scene. Now, Our our next scene opens with the subtlety of the serpent. Moses closes the first act with a comment about the state in which our first parents resided. And he opens the second act with a comment about the state in which the serpent resided. One was naked. The other was subtle. On the surface, these two words do not seem to have really anything to do with each other. But in the original language, the language in which Moses wrote to his hearers, the force and the clarity with which Moses is speaking is simply a master class. It's, it's the hinge upon which everything in chapter 3 turns. The entirety of human history turns on this subtle fact. It's so subtle, however, that you cannot see it. You have to hear it. Quite literally, the difference in the Hebrew word naked and the Hebrew word Subtle is a single dot. A single dot. I'm gonna pronounce those words for you. Arom naked. Arum Subtle. Arom naked. Arum. Subtle. Did you hear that? This is a master class from Moses in theological subtlety. If you're not listening carefully enough, if you don't know the language, those words can fly right by and you never notice the difference. To the untrained ear, they are nearly the same. Moses is communicating to us something about the narrative that is extremely important here. Here's the point. Adam and Eve's nakedness in the garden is being contrasted with the subtlety of the serpent. It's a polarization of those terms. But here's the crucial thing to understand. It was a polarization by a single dot, a single degree. It was the difference in heading east and heading east-northeast. The contrast is a single degree off, a single digit difference on the GPS, imperceptible to someone not paying attention. Like a ship that sets sail whose heading is off by one degree, so too the difference here can be imperceptible. But the final destination, where that ship ends up, is the difference in landing on the shores of the Bahamas and finding yourself shipwrecked and enslaved On the pirate shores of Somalia. This is a true jot and tittle theology. And for our first parents, think about this, beloved. It was a matter of life and death. We like to say it this way the devil's in the details. Arum. Arum. Adam and Eve were obvious. Satan was hidden. They were morally pure, upright, possessing integrity. He was subtle, and his actions were not immediately known. He was off by a single dot, which did not seem like much at the beginning of the story. But by the end, the difference had in its purview, as we look in the rearview mirror of history, a swath of destruction only God could unwind. What we are witnessing here is a master class in the art of masquerade, of illusion. Here, subtlety is the antithesis, the polarization of being naked and unashamed. So begins our new character and our new scene. So, to my first point, notice his subtle instrument. Notice Satan's subtle instrument. Satan's instrument was the serpent. It was a beast of the field that God had made. It was a wild animal in comparison to the others which seemed to to be more utilitarian animals. I don't know how much use a snake is on a farm besides shooing them away. Other animals were easier to exercise dominion over. It appears to be part of the untamed creation from which Adam was taken and something he let into the garden. It was therefore under Adam's dominion. The subtlety of the serpent was a divine gift from God. Subtlety was something endowed on this creature by God himself. In calling the serpent subtle as created by God, Moses was not faulting the creature, but simply pointing out its God-ordained creaturely nature. Otherwise, why would God command his children to be wise As serpents, it was the way God made it. When God stepped back and saw what he had made, he beheld that it was very good. Subtlety in the serpent was not a sinful quality. Subtlety was part of its constitution. It was created with that capacity. Our own confession, 1689, makes this plain when it says that Satan used the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve. He used its subtlety. Those men saw the difference in the goodness of the creation, a utility used for the glory of God by Adam, and the perversion of that creation in the hands of the evil one. The serpent was an instrument, a harmless thing in itself. Now, as we explore how to resist the devil a little later... This will be a key fact to keep in mind, and this fact goes right to the heart of fighting sin. But Satan used it. He perverted the good design of God into his own purposes. It was the animal that the evil one saw as most suitable for the purpose of his task. He cloaked himself with the animal to disguise his purposes. In his analysis, this animal that God created was the most appropriate tool. The glove simply fit and the serpent spoke. At this point, many walk away from the narrative. Many unbelievers, many skeptics walk away from the narrative. They think it a hard thing for a serpent to talk. A serpent does not possess the ability to speak. It was therefore not the animal that spoke, beloved, but the evil one through the instrumentality of that animal. Trumpets do not play themselves, and snakes naturally do not talk. They must be animated to communicate by a rational being. This was the supernatural nature of the serpent speaking. Well, the, the testimony of the serpent post-fall is a gremlin. I'm not going to take a show of hands here because I don't know uh, who actually likes snakes. But the, the testimony of the world nearly um, wholesale Nobody really likes snakes. The memory of a serpent is connected to the destruction of life. They forever serve as a symbol of the curse of man, of the demonic forces at play in the world, and the ultimate triumph of the serpent crusher, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is quite possible that they, as the chief symbol of the evil one, groan more fully than all creation— as Paul says in Romans 8, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the pinnacle of God's creation was faced with a pinnacle subtlety. Adam was faced with a pinnacle subtlety. How could he ever, he and his wife, ever rule over Leviathan if they could not master the serpent? It was crouching at their door. They must rule over it. So notice, firstly, Satan's subtle instrument. Secondly, notice his subtle name. In Hebrew narrative, there's much tied to a name. The name used in the various biblical, biblical accounts tell us a lot about what's going on in the story. This was the Hebrew way. Our story is the name of the evil one. But that, that name had not yet been fully revealed He was simply the serpent. His name was obscured in a shadowy way to match his crafty character. Only subsequent revelation gives us a clearer picture of who this serpent really is. Now, maybe it crossed your mind as I was speaking of the subtle instrument of the serpent that you couldn't quite figure out who I was talking about. Was I talking about a literal snake? Or was I talking about the evil one himself? Now, if that question was raised in your mind as you listened, if there was a sense of ambiguity, then Moses' point has been pressed home. Moses has made his point. The subtle ambiguity is the identification. It's part and parcel of the deception. It may be a surprise, but later revelation does not give us the evil one's actual name. It does develop his character, however. It calls him the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and as we like to call him, Satan. Though in Matthew 12, 24, the Pharisees refer to the prince of demons as Beelzebul, even this name has an elusive meaning. Literally, there are no extra biblical documents that even begin to help us with clues as to what it exactly means. Now, we're most familiar with the designation Satan. It was the word that Jesus and the apostles ascribed to the evil one most frequently. The word Satan in Hebrew, which means accuser, adversary, or opponent in the broader use of Scripture, is used for both uh, terrestrial things and celestial beings. David is called a Satan, by the Philistines, 1 Samuel 29, 4, as he opposed them in battle. The angel of Yahweh himself acts as a Satan when he opposes Balaam, numbers twenty two, twenty two, thus making the donkey speak. The noun form appears 22 times in the Old Testament, 14 times of which are in the first two chapters of Job. Many other places use this word and, and title. Now, in our narrative... My point is this, we never know the tempter's true name. We get the names of other angels, Michael, Gabriel. We know their names, but their names are not a strict identification of their activity. They had many tasks. In the New Testament, as a contrast, the forces at work in the garrison demoniac aren't identified by a proper name, but with their number. When asked his name, they reply, my name is Legion, for we are many. The point is this, Satan is identified with his activity in such a way that in a biblical writer's mind, his activity becomes his name. Get that. His activity becomes his name. Later writers do this very thing. He is Satan, accuser, deceiver. It's the very identification of who he is and what he does. Think about it. In our narrative, he does not come and announce the activity by which he's identified. Moses doesn't say something like this. Now the accuser, or now Satan, or now the devil... Are now the evil one, but what does he say? Now the serpent. Moses offers for our consideration a blended identity, a little leaven in the lump. He's teaching us something about the nature of this being's work by his identity. The ambiguity is the identity, it is the deception. This is why scripture says in Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And it's why, more than likely, you will never name one of your kids Adolf. I was meant to make you laugh. (laughs) His actions are his identity, right? And his identity are his actions. And so it is with the evil one. So we've seen his subtle instrument and his subtle name, but notice lastly here, the third point, his subtle temptation. It is a threefold temptation. The serpent first poses doubt with a question. Has he said to the woman, verse 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He poses doubt with a question. Notice that the evil one does not at first outright assert error. Criminals are not fools. They're subtle. He begins with a question. What could be more subtle than a question? It's just a question. Simple enough, right? Just a conversation piece, no harm. Just a consideration. Well, you know, first debate then the hook. Yahweh had given a command, but it was the truth and therefore the authority of the command that Satan brought into question. In one sense, this interaction could read something like this. Really? Did God say? In other words, is this a real fact we're talking about here? Satan introduced a plain conditional statement. He seduced Eve through the pure commandment of her covenant creator. He brought into question the truthfulness and validity of the command of God and thus the character of God as man's covenant creator. But did you catch the name the serpent uses when referring to God? Look, some of your Bibles may capitalize uh, certain words in certain ways. That word God there is the word Elohim. It's not Yahweh Elohim. He calls God creator. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, was the one who gave the command to Adam and Eve. The craftiness of Satan's question draws Eve into referring to God in a manner of speaking, thus disconnecting her from speaking of him and remembering his covenant-keeping name, which is Yahweh. Satan changed the name by which Eve was to refer to God. He changed the reference point by which Adam and Eve were to operate. They were operating in covenant with God, and she falls for it. The rest of the narrative illustrates this sad but true compromising language. Her rebuttal is proof. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Eve changed her language about God based on a certain and subtle doubt from Satan. So Satan poses doubt with a question. That's the first uh, subtle temptation. That's the first link in the chain. He poses doubt with a question. Secondly, he urges contradiction with a rationalization. You're rational people, right? Let's talk this out. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Verse 4, his unfolding purpose becomes slightly more plain as time goes on. He insinuates that Eve will surely not die if she acts in direct contradiction to the words of Yahweh. He calls Yahweh a liar. The the serpent's answer is basically this. God only threatens. How could he be so serious? He doesn't really intend to kill you if you eat, have no fear. You would never even be so rigid and cold and strict now, would you? God, God would never be that way. Satan numbed the mind of Eve to the warnings of God. To cast off all fear of judgment. The contradiction is per- pushed further underneath the skin as he gives purpose and interpretation to the commands of Yahweh. You don't want Satan doing exegesis for you. He urges her to rush to rationalization. Rationalize with me about this, Eve. Let's talk here, let's have a meeting of the minds but Satan rationalizes from the contrary, not from the truth. His chief rationalization goes something like this. You're not going to hurt anybody. This fruit is useful for you. How could eating it be a bad thing? God is just jealous that you'll be like him. You will be so far from dying that you will literally attain divine status. The serpent was pushing Eve to be discontent with the measures of her knowledge divinely given by God. So Satan secondly urges contradiction with a rationalization. Third, he offers an alternative with a promise. He offers an alternative with a promise. In this rationalization is an alternative with a promise. He offers Eve a promise of being like God, knowing good and evil. The alternative is to eat, and the promise is divinity. Instead of seeing things as they are, seeing them as God has ordained them to be, you'll see things as they are truly meant to be seen. Your eyes will be opened, he says. In this interesting play on words, the serpent is telling Eve that the sight The knowledge of the mind by which she had been walking in the garden with Yahweh was not really true sight at all. These things she saw with her mind's eye were not really as they were meant to be. This is not the way God meant it to be. What they saw with the eyes of the body in the nakedness of each other, they comprehended as not a shameful thing. But when they ate, their eyes were open and they realized their mortality and that the purity that they had been given was forfeited. And just like the the tempter, they sought another skin. The serpent's subtlety was an unholy trinity of doubt, rationalization, and alternative joy. Beloved, in every interaction Satan has in this world, we find that pattern. Doubt, rationalization, and alternative joy. Every temptation, all the calamity of life, all the callousness of our heart toward God comes in the form of doubt, rationalization, and alternative joy. Our Lord was tempted in this way in Matthew 4. Our Lord was tempted to doubt the bare word of God as sufficient, Matthew 4.3. He's tempted to rationalize plain commands, 4-6. And finally, he's offered the alternative of the kingdoms of the world without the obedience of the cross, 4-9. This temptation of the last Adam is a significant part of the triumph of the head crusher over the serpent. And this pattern, I'm convinced, is the pattern by which every temptation comes. Doubt, rationalization, alternative joy. Well, let me give you a few observations as we close our time together over this text. First of all, we have to remember that Satan always presents the bait and always hides the hook. Satan always presents the bait and always hides the hook. His subtlety was to offer an apple in exchange for paradise. That's the subtlety of doubt. Well, what's the remedy? The remedy is to remember that sin is bittersweet. The lips of sin drip with honey. But in the end, it is incredibly bitter and sharp as a two-edged sword. Sin's feet go down to death, following the path to Sheol. The bait is very, very exciting, but the hook is very, very deadly. So we have to remember that Satan always presents the bait and always hides the hook. Secondly, remember that Satan always paints sin in the color of a virtue and never in the shade of a vice. He always paints sin in the color of a virtue and never in the shade of a vice. He lessens it. He calls it by a different name. He takes off the edge. He's in the business of masquerading, beloved. Sin in his hands change like the chameleon. That's the subtlety of rationalization with evil and with your own sin. He always paints sin in the color of a virtue and never in the shade of a vice. Well, what is the remedy? We have to commit to calling sin what it is and calling fallen man what they are. There are no words that we could use to paint humanity in the blackest colors that it deserves. Here's a life principle that I've learned in dealing with people. Um... When someone shows you who they really are, believe it. When someone shows you who they really are, believe it. Sometimes we when we're dealing with people, our our minds are blinded to the fact that people can be really downright nasty. And that's okay, they can be forgiven and they can be loved. But don't fool around with the definitions. When someone shows you who they really are, believe it. If you're not willing to call sin what it is and look on sin as the very thing that cost the Son of God his blood, then there's no amount of words I can use to persuade you to see sin for what it is. Sin crucified the Lord of glory. I can't make that an affectionate statement for you. You have to simply be alive to feel the weight of it. That's the remedy. Call sin for what it is. Refuse to paint sin in another color. But third observation. Remember that Satan presents God as all love. Remember that Satan presents God as all love. What's the remedy to this? Many churches will not preach on Sin or the wrath of God, holiness, things like that. God is just a God of all love. What's the remedy? Well, the whole counsel of God. We say to the law and to the testimony, what saith God of himself? He does not hide who he is on the pages of scripture. He is wrath. He is love. He is omniscient. And he remembers our sin no more. He's mercy, he is judge, he is both in heaven and in hell, the inheritance of eternal blessedness for the saints of God in that heavenly place, and the relentless tormentor of the wicked in hell. The true Christian wants all of God and nothing less. The Apostle Paul makes this plain. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's nothing short of cunning, the craftiness of the serpent, to shave off the rough rough edges of the Bible. I doubt whether any man has been called to preach who tiptoes around a text. I lay bare in front of you here. I doubt any man has been called to preach who tiptoes around the text. We preach what God says. That's it. It's one thing to know in wisdom what text to preach. The proverb is true. A word fitly spoken is like apples in gold in a setting of silver. But it's another thing to avoid a text altogether. God does not hide himself. And you shouldn't try to hide him either. So remember that Satan presents God as all love. And we must preach the whole counsel of God as the remedy. Well, fourthly and lastly, remember that Satan always blurs the lines between morality and true heart religion. Satan always blurs the lines between morality and true heart religion. This is the alternative promise. I was talking with some brothers and sisters over lunch today. It was a, a good time. We lost track of time. I was almost late coming, coming here this evening, but it was good. Um, I was talking to them about how, as a parent, I don't parent for social respectability. I parent for holiness. My kids may be accepted by the culture and still go to hell. They may say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, and be the most polite and kind and proper people on the face of the planet and still go to hell. If I'm parenting the heart for holiness, the world may reject them, but they'll be on their way to heaven. Satan always blurs the lines between morality and true heart religion. He'll convince you that you did well to avoid that R-rated movie, all the while encouraging you to show up for church because it's the socially acceptable thing to do. He will convince you that it would be well if the bars were all closed, everyone paid their bills on time, and we all parented our kids in this socially respectable way rather than for holiness. He would love nothing more, parent, than for your kids to be the most well-behaved and courteous children on the face of the planet, all the while coddling secret sin. He would be totally okay with that. He loves to keep hearts wicked and Facebook profiles squeaky clean. Everybody sees those family photos on Facebook, right? It's the perfect American family. What's happening behind closed doors? He would love it no no more than to make every one of you good little moralists. I'm convinced that he works harder in this area than any other. Never, never, never forget this fact. The very first temptation occurred in the church. The church is no safe space from his tempting power. This place above all others is the battleground. How you fight out there is largely determined by your heart attitude here. How you fight out there is largely determined by your heart attitude here. What's the remedy for this? Moralism versus heart religion. Recognize that there is an ocean's distance between morality and heart holiness. These two things exist on two totally different shores, two totally different continents. And if you're to sail aright, the subtlety of the serpent's words can only be drowned out by more beautiful music, the beautiful music of the gospel. I want to close by sharing an illustration with you and Uh, hopefully this illustration brings home what I'm trying to say here. How many of you are familiar with the story of the Odyssey by Homer? Read that, right? Most of us have read that. In that story, you may recall that Paris, the prince of Troy, had seduced and stolen Helen, the wife of Menelaus, the king of Greece. So Odysseus, Along with Menelaus, his brother Agamemnon, and the army of Greece sets off to Troy to recapture Helen and restore her, and along with her, the honor of Menelaus in Greece. Hiding in the belly of the Trojan horse, they snuck into the city, slaughtered its people, and rescued Helen. But it seemed that the voyage home proved to be more difficult than the rescue. Odysseus had been warned about the infamous sirens, who seduced the sailors who passed by their island. These were creatures of immense subtlety and great beauty, whose alluring songs were both seductive and irresistible. Countless sailors succumbed to the enchantment of their songs, drew too close to the shore, and crashed their boats off the hidden rocks beneath the surface. Then these demonic cannibals, whose alluring songs and stunning beauty which seduced the sailors, They would have those sailors for lunch. Odysseus was warned of this, so he cleverly prepared his crew to be ready to resist. He put wax in their ears so that they would not be allured by the seductive songs. He commanded them not to look to the right or to the left as they sailed. But for his part, he wanted to see the beauty of the sirens and feast his ears on their songs So he had his men tie him to the mast of the ship and told them to ignore his pleas to be set free until they had passed by and were out of danger. As you would expect, he was completely and hopelessly seduced by the songs of the sirens. Were it not for the ropes, he would have given himself wholesale to their invitation. Everything he knew of the danger in advance would not have kept him on the ship. Though his body was restrained, his heart was captivated. Inwardly, he said yes to the temptation, even though the ropes that held him said no. His no was not because he was not seduced. His no was because he was externally restrained. This is the subtle alternative. This is morality. And this is the way many professing Christians live their lives. They live with hearts panting for the passing pleasures of sin, but they are for the most part restrained by rules, by the fear of man, by the fear of hell, by their parents, by social respectability but their hearts are seduced and they long for the pleasures of sin. No lasting victory over sin, beloved, can be experienced when the heart is seduced by the songs of the world. And the only restraint is being tied to the mast of religious expectations, the expectations of maybe yourself or your peers. Well, that's the story of Odysseus. There's a lesser-known figure in mythology named Jason. Like Odysseus, he faced the temptations produced by the sirens with their beauty and their seductive melody. Jason's solution to the danger of the sirens was a little different than Odysseus. He brought along on the voyage a musician named Orpheus. He was a musician of incomparable talent, skill on the lyre and the flute, And when the time of temptation came, he did not fill his ears or his crew's ears with wax. He did not strap himself to a mast. He simply ordered Orpheus to play the most beautiful and alluring music that Orpheus could play. Jason did not struggle with being seduced by the subtle beauty of the sirens. He was kept safe because the transcendent beauty of Orpheus' melody had captivated him. The sirens didn't stand a chance. Jason and his men refused the sirens. And they were allure because they heard a far more beautiful sound. They heard something more alluring, something sweeter, and something far nobler and more soothing. Could it be? that there are some here that have been tying themselves to the mast of church attendance, to respectability, to morality, and they've never truly heard the stirring sound of the gospel. Does that describe you? If so, hear the word of the Lord. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your soul take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart for my yoke is easy my burden is light yet even now declares the Lord return to me with all your heart with fasting with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Can you hear the sound of forgiveness over the voice of the tempter? I pray the Lord grant you to hear it this evening. Let's pray. Lord, there are many things in this life that tempt us, and they all follow a pattern, and we must know our enemy as Christians. Satan presents doubt to us, to doubt your word, to doubt your character, to doubt your faithfulness, to doubt your goodness, to doubt who you are, wholesale. And then he presents a rationalization of the facts. He wants to enter into debate with us. And then he presents an alternative joy. Lord, would you grant us strength to remember those three things, doubt, rationalization, alternative joy, as we fight against sin. As we long to grow in holiness, help us not to be moralists, Lord, but to be heart holy for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.